1: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Carpet Bombs and Chicken Hawks edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Not a fan of either, by the way. Or, Chicken Hawks or Carpet Bombing. We really just could do without them. Mm, that yeah. was not a chicken you just heard, by the way. That it was, was a, a,
2: it. was a chicken hawk. It was
1: definitely a chicken hawk. My good friend Mark Coffin would have noted chicken hawk.
2: They're they're native to Washington. Did you they know sure that? are.
1: <laughs> that? They, they grow, they run wild in the streets, <laughs> and, and then in Las and a, Vegas. Too.
2: Yeah, on cable TV, apparently. They sure
1: do, boy. They just flock to it. Uh, and we're joined by a very special guest this week. He's going to come in handy for us explaining. This crazy, crazy presidential debate that we had last night and also what else is going on in our world. Um, Will McCants of the Brookings Institution. Hello. And the author of The Excellent, The ISIS Apocalypse, The History, Strategy, and Doomsday Vision of the Islamic State. Which, if you listen to this podcast, you probably already know about Will's book. You've probably read read Will's book. Um, but we're really thrilled to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Will is standing in for Ben, who is, where the
2: hell is Ben? Ah, Israel, I think. Oh,
1: Israel. Okay. Yeah boondoggling, Mm. and log rolling.
2: Yeah. All the things that he does as a fellow. Chicken
1: Chicken hawking (laughs) all over Tel Aviv. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, Well, we have a lot to get to on the podcast this week. So uh, the GOP presidential candidates debated foreign policy in Las Vegas on Tuesday and dared each other to carpet bomb the hell out of the Islamic State. Utterly. Utterly devastate them. We're going to talk about that and what they had to say about U.S. foreign policy and homeland security, which was the ostensible topic of the debate. Uh, and Isn't also, that
2: a show? Well, like on TV?
1: Ostensible topic of the debate?
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, Homeland. <laughs> oh, that's a much better show. That's a way better show than It's way
2: guy. more coherent than anything we heard last night. It's also... Night. Is anybody... Are you guys watching the show this season? Yeah. No, and to be it honest. Is eerily, You're watching it, Will?
1: Yeah. It is eerily... Like I mean, it, I, I'm beginning to think they are writing it a week at a time. Well,
3: they've been, they've had two long soliloquies on apocalypticism and ISIS. Yes, that they sound, must have read your book. It sounds awfully close. Have wow. they consulted with you? No,
1: regrettably.
2: I Man. I think you should demand a fee. <laughs>
1: yeah, it is like ripped from the headlines. It's like the writers from like what's that show? Special Victims Unit.
2: Yeah. What's that show called? CSI. No,
1: it's CSI. Oh, law and order. Law, and law and order. order. That one. Sadly, no. Fair CS up. law. CS something or other. CS cyber law. Victims unit. Yeah, so we're going to talk about all that. Not not that. And we're going to talk about the debate. Uh, and also, are the Saudis finally ready to get serious and take on ISIS? I didn't see any Saudis in Las Vegas last night.
2: Probably just as well. Probably just
1: as well. Um, all right, so we'll, let's just get right into it. So last night, uh, Tuesday, we're recording this on Wednesday. So Tuesday was the... Fifth GOP presidential debate. Uh, There are nine candidates left on the overcard.
2: Honestly, I've lost count of the debate (laughs) and the candidates.
1: Yeah, yeah. And after last night, you very well might want to uh, lose track of them again. This was ostensibly a debate about um, uh, homeland security, foreign policy, but in the sort of the counterterrorism kind of realm. And I I have to say, just for myself, just going to get things started... I, it was like one of the most low information. Just, I mean, it was just bad. It felt rock bottom to me. I mean, it was posturing. The questions, many of them, seemed not serious. There were blatant misstatements of facts that the none moderators of which were, were called on. out
2: by the moderators. None of them. None, none of, them. of
1: them. So you know, but I mean, what really kind of struck me, and maybe this is the good, good way to you know, kick off this the wordplay is this whole question of. Carpet bombing, of what would you do to keep America safe? How far are you willing to go against ISIS? Um, playing off of Ted Cruz's comments before that he would carpet bomb the Islamic State and see if sand glow- glows in the dark. I don't think any of the moderators mentioned that, you know actually, like, literally carpet-bombing Raqqa would violate, you know, the Geneva Convention and constitute a war crime. R- Rand
2: Paul actually pointed that out? Point that out. he out? did. He gave it to Rand Paul. Yeah.
1: Um, so, <laughs> that, you know,
2: that champion of international law, Rand yeah, Paul. Exactly.
1: So, I mean, just almost useless questions that were aimed at, you know, getting answers that we, we would never do this anyway. Uh, we're not going to carpet-bomb Raqqa. But, I mean, maybe this is, I would love to know from both of you, and, you know, it's good that Will's here, too, because... When ISIS hears this and presumably they're they're to some degree watching what maybe not watching the debate but are aware of the fact that we are having a presidential election does this embolden them to hear this kind of talk I mean it it seems silly to our ears perhaps but how is ISIS interpreting that when Ted Cruz stands up there and says we're going to carpet bomb you or Donald Trump says you know we're going to kill your members family of members families. yeah
3: yeah you know, I mean the it, demonstrates to them that the candidates don't understand what the situation is. I mean, Hmm. Ted Cruz couldn't even pinpoint where ISIS was actually located, seemed to be ignorant of the fact that it's mainly in urban areas, which make it difficult to bomb in this way. Uh, You seem
1: to think they were all just hanging out in the desert, and it would be just like, you know... Kuwait in 1991
3: or whatever. That's right, and Carson was talking about arming the Kurds, but ha- in Syria, but having to get permission from Baghdad. Before right, doing and it.
2: resettling uh, Sunni Arab Syrian refugees in uh, in Kurdish dominated areas.
3: That's yeah. right, which apparently has many high rises and hotels and landing. Oh yeah, I heard he said well. that. Yeah, like hotels.
2: Yeah, I did. I did catch that mention of hotels in <laughs> Hasaka province. <laughs> Oh, wow, did you know? Honors points, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, I think I think one of the things that must have delighted ISIS were they watching the debate. Would be the way that the candidates talked about Muslims in this country and the broader "quote unquote" Islamic threat. I mean, aside from uh, Senator Graham, most of the candidates. Uh, were portraying Muslims in this country and around the world as as hostile enemies, yeah, um, as a fifth column in the West. Uh, even though when they talked about the Middle East, there was no better friend in their eyes than Saudi Arabia, and it was this just this strange disconnect among the candidates that they would hold the Saudis up uh, as uh, you know the North Star, where to turn for leadership. But when they talked about their own Muslim populations in the United States, they should spoke of them as if they were objects of suspicion.
1: Mm. Tamara, do you think, I mean, is that, point Will's point, I mean, is that coming from just some sort of knee-jerk foreign policy, or not knee-jerk, but some, some deeply felt foreign policy position of these candidates, or are they just saying shit, and it's just coming out, and they're just saying, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Kurds yeah. and stuff. That's no. what it felt like to me. To be
2: well, concerned. I mean, that's certainly what it sounded like in its degree of ignorance and incoherence, but I don't think that's what's motivating it. I think what's motivating it is um, a desire by the candidates to best capture or best echo or best reflect the anxiety, the fear of... Um, the segments of the American public to which they are playing in their primary campaigns. And, you know, even before uh, the San Bernardino attacks shifted the conversation to Muslims in the United States, there were a lot of political analysts pointing to the kind of class anxiety that undergirds some of these Republican candidates' primary appeals. And so if you combine that sort of class Anxiety and race anxiety, which has also been uh, discussed in this context, with uh, an anxiety about these foreign others who present some kind of uh, fifth column within our own society. You know, I think they really were just playing to the crowd. That is understandable, although it is um, amoral, it's regrettable, it's counterproductive. Uh, it's anti-American, I think, in some pretty fundamental ways. But it's also not, sadly, that unusual in domestic politics. I think the part that I've found surprising was not that, um, not the way they talked about Muslim Americans, but the way they talked about how they would prosecute the war against ISIS. Um, the idea that, no, we don't want ground troops um, because we know the American public doesn't want ground troops, but... We are going to carpet bomb. We're going to engage in massive, sustained military campaigns from the air. Mm-hmm. We're going to be willing to, um, it, you know, if you listen to Donald Trump, put pressure on the families of terrorists, arrest the families of terrorists, kill the families of terrorists. Uh, you know, you had, based on one sort of bizarre question, I think, from Wolf Blitzer, a suggestion that maybe... Um, maybe civilian casualties in the war on terrorism could be a good thing. And that part of one's test as a commander in chief and a serious defender of American national security should be a willingness to, um, to engage in, in attacks that would have civilian casualties. In other words, not just to accept a degree of collateral damage, but in some way to embrace it. And that I found all very bizarre. Um, And so I guess one question I would have for you, Will, is, you know, given that, okay, ISIS wants a confrontation, they like this black and white, this massive gap that's opened um, between, you know, uh, in the discourse um, and the idea of a clash of civilizations. But what are they going to think about the idea of this sort of no-holds-barred, you know, uh, scorched-earth military approach?
3: Well, There's one school of thought that says ISIS is going to embrace it and welcome it. They see this as the ultimate apocalyptic clash with the West. Um, On the other hand, uh, they could be uh, fearful of that kind of uh, military engagement. If they feel like it's going to ultimately lead to the loss of their state, I think what they would be looking for were they analyzing and parsing the way we are, what they would be looking for is is somebody to really commit ground troops. That's that's what they're hoping for. And I didn't hear any of these candidates talk about committing a large number of forces at all.
2: No, even Lindsey Graham, who has said on many occasions that he thinks the U.S. should commit ground troops... Is talking about a relatively small force.
3: Right. And yeah, I
2: actually
1: have the transcript here of the debate in front of me, and the words do not appear, right? I mean, not in the context of a candidate making a proposal, which I thought was, you know, unfortunate about Senator Cruz's remarks where he talked about in the first Gulf War and carpet bombing, which, by the way, we didn't do carpet bombing. And he said saturation bombing. And he
2: said, which and, we also didn't do. Yeah, he's just kind of all
1: over the map here. But sort of making it, you know, in talking about the success of the air campaign in the first Gulf War... And, and then I think the word that he used was, then the, then the ground forces came up and mopped up what was ever, well, the, and for, troops went in, in a day and a half, quote, mopped up what was left of the Iraqi army, sort of making it seem like the ground forces were sort of an afterthought. And it just betrays this fundamental misunderstanding of not just really actually what happened in the Gulf War, where it was not just because, you know, the air forces, you know, that, you know, blew, blew them to hell. I mean, we had a, massive ground force that was prepared to roll into Baghdad if it needed to, that was able to, you know, seize those troops that were there. But can we just go to the more recent experience in the other war in Iraq, where, you know, it is absolutely essential to have a massive ground force to sustain and control these areas if you're going to obliterate a terrorist group like this. I mean, that's how we destroyed al-Qaeda in Iraq. That is the predecessor to ISIS. And it just seemed like he was selling people this, you know, bill of goods to suggest that, oh, if we just only do more air campaign and bomb more places, it'll totally wipe ISIS out and we'll be fine. And that's just recent history shows that that's not true.
2: You know, the other thing that I was thinking about last night, listening to this um, (laughs) this substance discussion, I was thinking about Ronald Reagan. I was Mm. thinking about Ronald Reagan because I don't think anyone mentioned him, or maybe once at the end I think Cruz talked about how he built up the U.S. military. Um, But Other than that, his name was not invoked, as it typically has been in earlier Republican um, political campaigns. But number two, you know, Reagan was all about um, the United States being the leader of a grand coalition, a global set of friends and partners and allies who shared a vision about world order that we were there to kind of lead and implement. Um, and if you think about the coalition behind the Gulf War of 1990-91, um, that was an incredibly broad coalition, yeah. uh, even broader than what we have today in our formal coalition to defeat ISIL. Um, and I just, I was really, really struck that for none of these guys did relationships with other countries matter, other governments didn't matter, um, and what the U.S. stood for in the world did not matter. It was simply about these guys are bad. We have to kill them, and we, meaning we, the United States alone and utterly, uh, and and no broader context. You know, no theory of world order, much less a theory of warfare.
3: Right. Yeah, and it was it was striking watching the the pregame show with Lindsey Graham, and he was talking about this very Islamic discourse on the right, and was saying how hard it will make it to build alliances in the Middle East if Trump, for example, is trying to shut the door on Muslims coming into this country. But one of the things that really struck me as a major difference between the candidates is what they said about Assad and Russia. That, to me, is where you got to some of the more fundamental disagreements. with, Because when it was on ISIS, it was all tough talk and it was all bombing. Right. But when it came to what you do about the political situation in Syria, there were major differences between the candidates. And it, for once, I, I remember thinking, it's like, oh, the... The neocon voice is is not overwhelming here. There's no, a real in fact split it's a among minority. the a minority. Yeah. Well,
2: Rubio was really the minority on the Assad question.
1: Right, it seemed like most people were more in line with the Obama administration, which is basically you've got to deal with ISIS and you know Assad will come next, but we're sort of stuck with this.
2: But there was also this sort of Trump, you know, Paul, and a little bit of Cruz saying, "Yeah, actually, dictators are fine. You know, even if they're." If, if they completely oppose not just our values but our interests, as long as they can keep things under control, you know, we don't want to mess with them. We only want to carpet bomb these you know little terrorist insurgent groups, but we don't want to muck around with governments. We don't want confrontations with people who are actually leaders. I, again, I found that a really bizarre approach to America's role in the world, setting aside the specific context. Yeah.
1: I thought, I mean, and I, and I think to some degree... I found myself last night on, on not all the candidates, but some, stopping myself from even trying to analyze them too closely because I realized they just do not know what they're talking about. I mean, like Ben. I mean,
2: Ben Carson clearly studied some some oh, talking points, though. He
1: clearly
3: took a trip and read a Wikipedia article, and you know, and half of his discussion <laughs> of what he would do tactically on the ground against ISIS was not half bad, but you could tell at a certain point he started to get his yeah. briefs he has briefs mixed, up. mixed up, and I yeah. mean. And it sort of goes
1: to me. It's a little bit in the you know Carly Fiorina. I think is more grounded and maybe has a bit.
2: She's memorized her talking but, points yes. much oh, she better. Yes, right. She delivers much them better. in an Aaron Sorkin style. She can style, name like? all of those generals who yeah. left, that's that's right? right? Am I, the, for the
1: record, General Petraeus, Petraeus was who not was retired, retired out? <laughs> who was <not> retired <laughs> early by the president? Yeah. He was retired early with something else <laughs> by Holly Petraeus. Um, uh, but no, it's like. So I found myself to some degree, you know, thinking, like, what am I even bothering for? Because these people are just so out of their depth, and this is crazy. But, you know, there was actually, but there were, we should give some credit, I think, honestly, to Governor Bush, who was the only one to stand up to Trump and say, here's the problem with your crazy idea about, you know, keeping Muslims out of the country which somehow barely became non-American Muslims. Yeah. Last night. yeah, that was Because the way I read it originally, it was like very clearly even American Muslims in his original statement. But Bush really standing up to him and kind of saying like, look, this is a preposterous idea because you'll alienate,
3: duh, the very people that we're trying to work with. But, you know, that, that
1: was really, that was about it.
3: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Was,
3: uh. It was interesting also that, that some of the candidates who engage in a more substantive discussion particularly on eavesdropping and metadata collection in this country, they were penalized by the other candidates for doing so. Fiorina, Christy, both went after them for hyper wonk talk. Right. Uh, But it was one of the few times in the debates where you had a substantive exchange between two guys who knew the issues really well, which was Cruz and Rubio.
2: Yeah, on the metadata. And that was was actually a fascinating moment, both because, as you said, um, that topic got pushed aside, but also because they couldn't even agree on the facts.
1: Right, Rubio and Cruz couldn't agree on it. And I have to say, I thought that Cruz's uh, description of what the changes to the Patriot Act did were more accurate than Rubio's. I mean, And also, because he gave out and he said, now we actually have access to a broader range of communications data than we had under the previous program. It's debatable whether or not the law actually changed that or just programmatically things have changed enough that now we're going to get that, right. but then the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Burr, came out the day and said he wants his staff to look into whether Senator Cruz um, disclosed classified information in the
2: During the, the debate? debate. Ooh! Which I don't think he did. But many people in
1: the Senate don't like that. Yeah. And Rubio hinted at that, didn't <laughs> he, did. he, in a rebuttal yes, to, the, Senate, to the Yes, he did. said, I want to get into revealing classified information right. here, but oh, wow. burn. Burn. burn, burn, burn.
2: Feel the burn.
1: All right. Uh, tomorrow, let's move on to your replay. Um, the Saudis, <laughs> they've come up here. Are they finally ready to get serious and deal with this ISIS-
2: problem. Well, right. So to bookend the entirely unserious um, conversation about ISIS in last night's Republican debate, I brought a a brief piece by my colleague Bruce Rydell on uh, an announcement that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia made earlier this week. Uh, A bit of a surprise, Deputy Crown Prince, Minister of Defense Mohammed bin Salman, the young, maybe not even 30 years old yet, Minister of Defense of Saudi Arabia, maybe now we're not sure about his age. We are not Can't sure about his age it,
1: that is so bizarre Go right ahead.
2: right <laughs> it is it is fascinating. Um, so he called a press conference earlier this week and announced kind of out of nowhere a new alliance, uh, an Islamic military alliance to fight terrorism. Um, and to fight it, you know, in a bunch of different fronts in, uh, in Syria and Yemen and Iraq and Egypt and Afghanistan and Libya. Um, and, uh, and that there would be a secretariat in Riyadh and an operation center to coordinate, uh, amongst the 34 members of this military alliance. Well, this sounded really exciting and seemed to be a response to, um, a lot of, uh, of sentiments expressed by the United States government and other Western governments and also other presidential candidates, like, for example, Hillary Clinton, that uh there would need to be forces on the ground to defeat ISIS. But those forces had to be local forces, that Sunnis had the biggest stake in this game and that they should be the ones uh, investing in, in the fight. Um, So, you know, for the Saudis to say, okay, we hear you, and here's our 34-country military alliance ready to do just that, that sounds really exciting. Um, The problem came the next day when several members of the announced alliance, you know, usually alliances are are codified in a treaty, you know, a nice mutual defense treaty or some grand meeting with everybody standing around and taking pictures, Mm -hmm. right, uh, and this was just a press conference with the Saudi Minister of Defense. Perhaps we should have been suspicious. But the very next day, uh, the Pakistani government and subsequently a couple other governments that were supposedly part of this alliance announced that they'd never heard about it. And they don't remember being asked. And as far as they're concerned, they're not a member of any military alliance. Uh, and in fact, the Pakistanis went so far as to reiterate that they've made a, a national decision that they're not going to deploy Pakistani forces outside Pakistan, except in the context of peacekeeping operations. So um this immediately, I think, raises the question of whether this Saudi announcement was really just a publicity stunt. <laughs> um, and if so, what was it trying to accomplish? Was it just trying to push back on Western criticism that the Saudis and, and others in the region aren't devoted enough to the fight? What, or was it trying to create some sense of momentum? What do we think they were trying to do?
1: Well, I mean, half the Saudis also been making other just ridiculous claims, like they took in three million Syrian refugees or something preposterous like this. I mean, it seems like this kind of fits a bit of a pattern of big talk with nothing backing it up. And we also have an operations center like in Iraq. I mean, there, it's not as if there's not a place where all of this kind of activity is going uh, on. Ah,
2: but it's not an Islamic military alliance. Oh, That's what it. makes it special. Well, also, like, fundamentally, like, where do they... So they're talking... And the
1: talk about the Sunni ground force is all fine and good, but I feel like everybody I talk to who's been in Iraq recently, or they, of the Sunnis they talked to, are like, yeah, we're not... You know, They're not really, like, itching for a fight right now against ISIS. Do you know what I mean? It's not like... We're not seeing some grand coalition being built on the ground right now, so I don't think why we would imagine that the Saudis sort of Waving the magic wand is going to take care of that. That's
3: absolutely right. If you look where they're committing their resources and their military power, it's in the fight against what they perceive to be as an Iranian proxy in Yemen. They're not taking it to Islamist terrorists. They're certainly not going after ISIS. They have not flown a sortie against ISIS for three, four months. I mean, most of the governments in the region, particularly those surrounding the Islamic State do not see its destruction as their top priority. It is a priority, but it ranks beneath other priorities. Like
2: pushing back on Iran, most of all. Exactly. Or denying the
3: Kurds a state or what have you.
2: So from that perspective, Will, would you say that this this announcement was really just an effort to distract um, and to say, yeah, yeah, it's our priority. See, we made an alliance while their behavior on the ground is... Um, directed against Iran.
3: Totally. And it also just but it says something worrisome about the, the Saudi regime. I mean, the fact that it wasn't well organized, that they did this without consulting other people, they just seem to be shooting from the hip.
2: Uh, yeah, well, one could argue that a lot of Saudi behavior in the last couple of years looks exactly. like shooting from the exactly. hip, like the whole military intervention in Yemen, exactly. um, which has just, you know, been sucking them in more and more. So, you know... It's um, it's interesting. I, I continue to hear from counterparts in the Gulf just how much of a priority um, containing Iran is for them uh, and how much they feel that the United States is insufficiently appreciative of that problem. And then on this side, you know, they're constantly hearing from the United States and, and from the Europeans, you don't give a high enough priority to our interests, which is dealing with ISIS. So this is becoming in a way a dialogue of the deaf. And I guess I see this, um, this gambit, this press conference announcing an alliance that doesn't really exist as just muddying the waters further instead of having an honest conversation, which should probably be behind closed doors Mm -hmm. about how to close this gap.
3: And there's a real misalignment of interests. I mean, the United States is the least threatened by ISIS and is doing the most to yeah. destroy it, and its allies in the region are free-riding on what it's doing.
2: Do you think the U.S. should be doing less? Do you think that there's an argument, given that uh, misalignment of interest, for the U.S. to kind of pull back as a way of compelling others to step up the fight?
3: I do, because if it's, if we are over there because we are trying to protect their interests, but their interests they see is, is lining up in some other fashion, I don't see how it's sustainable.
2: We can't want to defeat ISIS more than yeah, they want to defeat ISIS themselves. Well, this Sounds Hillary, familiar.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: This puts Hillary
1: Clinton, I mean, presuming she's the Democratic nominee, in a very strange position, right? Which is that, I mean, she might actually agree with you, Will, and they think that that's a sensible you know, observation that, yes, there is this sort of disproportionate, you know, uh, uh, our activity versus our risk. But there's no way she can back off ISIS in the campaign, right? I mean, there's she'll be no way the same she can... that every Democrat's always put in by a Republican, which is that you're weak on national security. Even though of all the Democrats who've run in the past you know, twenty five years, she probably is the strongest on national security and, and intervention. Um, I would just imagine that she's you that know, you're going to see her also calling for. Keep it up and, uh, uh, and, and not, not take okay. it. And she has, yeah. She, right.
2: Well, it's interesting because she gave a long speech yesterday before the Republicans got in on the action on CNN last night. And, you know, her framework was basically yes, we need to go after them, we need to be, sm- but we also need to be smarter in intelligence. We need to be smarter on counter-radicalization. We need the the Arab states to do more, both in terms of boots on the ground and also in terms of stopping the flow of terrorist financing and stopping the extremist um, rhetoric and propagation, which just you know creates an enabling environment for this stuff. So she, she's not backing off, and I think you're right that politically it would be really hard for her to do that. But she is also pointing out. That there are specific places where right. other actors have a burden that she's pushing them to fulfill, and of course, you know, maybe for a future discussion, um, she's also pushing a lot on the tech companies to cooperate more with the government and to and yeah. to come up with a way to deal with this encryption issue. I'm going to
1: make a prediction because you know I, I love. Predicting.
2: You're good at that. I love you, go, you go.
1: Donald Trump in the next three months is going to bow out of the race and decide that, I'm saying, I wasn't sure why I got into this, but I tar- i am responsible for starting a new debate about making America great again and our security and all the things that we have to do, and I'm encouraging all my supporters to get behind Ted Cruz. And oh. Ted Cruz becomes the Republican nominee.
2: You know what? Um,
1: that, that was the, my takeaway from last night. It's
2: totally plausible to me that Cruz and, and Trump have that thing going on, yeah. but I don't know it means that cru- Cruz is the nominee. Okay. I actually two predictions in there yeah, because there were two predictions in there, and I think I think what will determine the second one is whether Trump puts his own money behind Cruz because mm-hmm. I think Cruz he becomes his backer, yeah, Cruz is going to need that if he's going to try and get the nomination, especially I, with the Republican establishment desperately seeking a credible alternative to Trump and yeah. you know turning to Rubio and stuff like that. I think it's going to be hard for Cruz to get the cash. That's probably true,
1: that's probably true and I, and I think that fundamentally though, I think. Hillary Clinton, the ringbacked characters one last time, prefers to run against a Senator Cruz than a Senator Rubio.
2: <laughs> yeah, right? I'm, I'm guessing that. I mean, it was really striking last night that, you know, these are two smart guys, um, but one of them seems to have integrated a, a much wider fact base yeah. into his talking points <laughs> um, and seems to have thought about the issues in a, in a deeper way.
1: To be, to be fair, Senator Cruz has integrated a lot of Facts or, or fact like information.
2: <laughs> That's a really good one. Fact like information. Right. There was a lot of fact like information last night.
1: Attached to dates.
2: Yes. Will did a great job by the way of uh tweeting out corrections on the debate. You were fact checking in real time last night. Well,
3: I was blessed because they weren't talking about Russia or China, real national security <laughs> threats. They were talking about ISIS, which, you know, on the order of existential threats yeah. ranks low, but something I know about. Yeah, yeah. so
2: so you know you can check Will's timeline if you want that. He's a Will, Will underscore McCanns.
1: <laughs>
3: uh, all right,
1: uh, let's move on to uh, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I, I feel like it should be holiday themed because it's you know the spirit of the holidays is upon us. But alas, they're probably well, I don't know.
2: Is My, mine right? is know? it's not holiday themed, but it does have to do with the time of year. So it's. Uh, it's December. It is just before the holidays, which means it's the end of the academic semesters for university students here in Washington. And it's the time when our interns depart. Oh. And, you know, I think any of us who work in Washington understand the extent to which Washington runs on the free labor of interns. In fact, if interns suddenly unionized and went on strike, this whole town would grind to halt. No one would answer the phone, no one one would open the mail, no one would do anything. So um, I I actually brought a couple of thank you notes that I got from my interns. And, you know, I love having interns because they do a huge amount of work and cheerfully and they're really excited. In fact, I remember once overhearing a Hill intern on the Metro saying excitedly, I get to open the mail. Yeah, so God get the
1: anthrax right.
2: I, God bless the interns. I'm grateful for them for that. but i'm also I'm really grateful for them because, you know, sitting in my job, being a scholar and uh, and a manager, one of the things I really love is mentoring that next generation of foreign policy folks. And that's who these interns are. These are people who are excited about the world. They're not as depressed as we are watching that Republican debate. And, uh, and so I really, really love to get these cards at the end of the semester and, and just get a little taste of what they took away from their experience and what they're ex- excited to go on and do next. So. Here's my thank they ever you tell you cards. about the things that
1: they just hated about their internship?
2: <laughs> you know, I try to ask, I try to do a little <laughs> exit interview with them, and I always ask, do you, agree you know,
1: strong you disagree with the following statements.
2: <laughs> what could we do to make it better? What did you not love? And of course, they're never, never honest about that stuff because they're just so awesome. I'm terrified of you because <laughs> I'm scary. Let's let's admit it, right? Well, I'm That's scary.
3: Hate. Anna <laughs> Winter It's not just the it's not just the interns it's the research assistants too I have had a couple and they've all been oh we're scared to go in Tammy's eyes. she's really nice and oh approachable my God. yeah wow yeah. alright I'm going to have
2: to put on my <laughs> smiley face for a while around the <laughs>
3: office uh, do you have an object, Will? I do. A, I an do, and I I feel terrible now bringing it out because it's on the back of Tammy's really nice. Object. Oh no, well, that's okay.
2: Some objects right. are dark and some are light. So you know. this
3: is a page from an ISIS school textbook. They oh, have been, uh, with have that been, nice bayoneted
2: kind of rifle! rifle. That's right. Wow. So, a
3: <laughs> so they've got a number of textbooks. They out because they have to teach hundreds of thousands of kids they've got schools they are open and they've had to make textbooks for those schools and the textbooks are fascinating because they give you the goals for each lesson and this one is reading arabic poetry but particularly poetry that was produced in the middle ages um, against the crusaders so this is supposed to inculcate uh a spirit of jihad love for the religion it says and hatred for uh the enemies Wow,
1: does so it
3: what, rhyme? <laughs> uh, yes, it does. And you know, there's uh, and the,
2: and in the Middle Ages, did they use those bayoneted rifles against the Crusaders? Yeah, nice is that what that picture is
3: with a scope? scope on. Yeah. Uh, on other pages, there are pictures of rocket launchers too. Oh, um, yeah. So they want to put the kids in the in the right mood. But this stuff is mm-hmm. see Sam fire a J dam.
2: <laughs> Cute.
3: Yeah, but I, you know, it's it's one thing when jihadist culture is absorbed uh, online um, by disconnected people. It's another thing when you're producing it on an industrial level scale. Um. And there's a long tail to this conflict that we're not going to see for a generation wow. because of these young kids growing up with this. And well, yeah. do you
1: find these online, or are they just, I mean, are you? They
3: are putting them online, yeah. Wow. So, so I mean, presumably
1: even people who wanted to homeschool their children somewhere else and this kind of stuff could...
3: Yes, and interestingly, not to pile on the Saudis because it's easy, but when the Islamic State uh, first captured these cities and was setting up schools, they didn't have textbooks, so they used Saudi state textbooks because it's not far afield from their own theology. Wow.
1: Bang-up job, (laughs) Riyadh. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Uh, All right, so my object, actually, um, uh, there's this little movie coming out on Friday um called the force awakens huh like star wars you what, know
2: what it <laughs> what's that yeah it's
1: kinda, you may have heard something about this han sulu yeah <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> ham salad
2: yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> um there are no spoilers in this because i have not seen it <coughs> nor i don't think many people have seen it at all um but i am absolutely just dying to see this film which i'm going joe and i are going on monday
2: you're going on Monday. Well, you're Saturday. going on Saturday. Yeah, I feel like kids. such a loser. I'm not going to be able to go till after Christmas. Oh, really? Why? Yeah. Why? Why? Because I'm going away. Oh, you know. oh
1: okay. Oh, are you going to the beach? But we're doing the actual 3D IMAX experience, oh, which is very IMAX. controversial. Some people want to see it in the 2D first and the 3D later, but we're going to go full, full on. But I bring this up because uh, I was actually talking to a friend of mine today, uh, Charles Pink, who uh, runs the OSS Society, which is that great organization that uh, soldiers the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA. And he pointed out, and I don't know how much of this is true, but I think there's some truth to it, the number of national security and war-related allusions in Star Wars, particularly the Second World War. So there is a story that the Jedi actually refers to something called the Jedbergs, or Operation Jedberg, which was a clandestine op during World War II in which uh, the OSS, the French Bureau of the Resistance, and the, uh, British Special Operations Executive got together and did these clandestine special ops, and these were like the badass forces, uh, that were actually was the, the precursor to the Special Operations Forces. And they were the Jedbergs, and that this is where Jedi comes from. Mm-hmm. Also, it comes from, from a Japanese, uh, uh, history as well. Um, so that yeah,
2: you know, sure. there are no common cultural themes in this movie at all. So I think you, you actually have to dig and figure out what the sources are. What's another good one? Okay, so obviously
1: you have the stormtroopers, which I mean, seem like the Nazi stormtroopers, right? Okay, that's one. Uh, Imperial officers' uniforms also look like German army uniforms, uh, including the black clad SSS, the Death's Head uh, emblem. So some of those guys look on there. Now, granted, all the villains in Star Wars were British. Now that they have British accents, because they just sound more menacing. But there's that. Uh, Apparently, um, also, uh, George Lucas has talked about uh, references to, uh, or not not talked about this, but he's alluded to that references to there are places in the Star Wars universe like Hoth, which is a reference perhaps to General Herman Hoth, who served on the Eastern Front in the snowy areas. Hoth was an ice planet. (laughs) <laughs> hey, this is all on Wikipedia, so I got to mention it. Um, some of the planets in the Kessel system, which is a term that refers to a group of encircled forces. So there are all these kinds of like weird little pullouts. Hmm. Uh, and George Lucas, I think, is a pretty big World War II buff. He actually, in the 90s, there was a computer game that I played that Lucasfilm produced, and it was the Battle of Britain. And you could fly either as a member of the Luftwaffe or the RAF. Fighting for did you
2: it. have the X-wing option in that game? You
1: did not, sadly. They limited them to actually historically accurate aircraft. Mm. Um, but there's probably an Easter egg someplace in there.
2: That's so awesome, Shane. But can I just say, like, I've seen interpretations of the Star Wars story as the story of Islam. I've seen interpretations of the Star Wars story as the the struggle against ISIS. This is World War II. I, I actually think that, like all great literature. You can see in Star Wars so many things from from the history of humanity and civilization and I I think that's why Star Wars will endure.
1: It's totally world war 2. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You, you you just think that, man. <laughs> you have a good time.
1: I am going to have a good time. I'm so excited.
2: Wow. Well, no spoilers, guys, because I don't no, get right. back till the 28th. Okay.
1: And we are off next week, by the way, everyone, uh, just so podcast listeners are out there. So I'm going to go see Star Wars maybe a couple times.
2: Merry podcast Christmas.
1: Thank um, you, So that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our show archive at com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. When you download the podcast, please remember to leave us a nice rating and some comments. It really helps spread the word. Uh, we're really grateful to all those people who have been doing that. Uh, and the word is clearly getting out about rational security. So we're really excited. to Tell your friends. Tell your coworkers. And we really appreciate your support.
2: Tell uh, your dog. Does your dog like podcasts? Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
1: Dogs must be into that, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, people leave the radio on for their dog. They might as well leave our podcast on for their if, if there's dog. a
1: podcast <laughs> listener out there who will send us a picture of their dog listening to this podcast... I will put, like, something at dog frequency or, like, a dog special message. A
2: dog whistle?
1: Yeah, something. Oh, yeah. yeah. A literal one. (laughs) Figurative (laughs) ones we can do, too. But I will do something special for your dog. Send me a picture of your dog, and we will totally do it on the next podcast. Um, after you send that. Uh, The podcast is edited, of course, by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Ted Cruz and the Merry Carpet Bombers. Nice one. That's catchy. Cruz and the Carpet Bombers. Exactly. No, of course, our music was performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. We thank her very much. On behalf of my friends Tamara kaufman Wittis and Will McCants, our special guest, thanks for being here again, Will. I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.